wonderful staff we have today. We had Glenn, our youth pastor, serving at the time, and uh, we had Frank serving as our custodian, and then we had our wonderful secretary, Dorothy Love, who some of you remember, and things were, were going pretty well, but about four months into me being here at FCC, my faith was really tested because Dorothy's health took a turn. It was late November, possibly early December of 1999, and Dorothy was in the hospital, and it didn't seem like she was going to make it. And so I remember so clearly Christine and I were living in an apartment in Victorville at the time. We didn't have any of our kids yet, and I remember so clearly walking down our apartment hallway to our bedroom, and I walked into our bedroom, and I got down on my knees there at my bed, and I began pleading with God to heal Dorothy. There I was on my knees, and I was begging God. I was praying to God. I was crying to God. I was confessing my sin. I was telling him how I believe and knew that he could do it. Everything I knew to do to move the heart of God to heal this woman that I cared about, I was doing. And guess what happened? Within 24 hours, she was gone. She breathed her last. I would never see her again this side of heaven. And I've got to be honest with you, at the time I felt like God had let me down. I knew he had the power to heal Dorothy and he didn't do it. I had believed and I as one of his children had come to him in faith confessing my sin and asking him to bring a healing, and he didn't do it. I was disappointed with God. Have you ever been there? Most of us have. If you haven't already, at some point you probably will be. I want you to open to Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18, as we continue our study through the book of Luke today. We're going to dive into a very important, very short, but very important passage today that involves John the Baptist, the man that had blazed the trail for Jesus to begin his ministry. And we're going to see in this passage that John himself is this great prophet and this great follower of God. He himself struggled with some doubt and some disappointment with Jesus. If you've ever been there, Or you know someone who right now is not in church today because they have distanced themselves from God and possibly that person has distanced himself or herself from church because they believe that Jesus Christ has somehow let them down. This is a message I encourage you to pass on to them if they're not here today. Pass it on because what we learn today in this passage I think is so critical. A lot of times we'll come to church and pretend like our faith has not been shaken. But so often we come and our faith is just hanging on by a thin thread and we need a message like this one. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us. I thank you that you are a big God and you're not afraid of some tough questions. God, where were you? God, why didn't you answer my prayer in the way I wanted you to? God, why didn't you come through? How come what all I've heard over these years, people saying about how good you are and how strong you are, how come you don't seem very good or strong in this moment? Lord, help us to realize you can handle these tough questions. 
And help us, Lord, just in sincerity and openness and transparency to come to you today with our concerns, with our doubts, with our disappointments. And God, would you speak to us through your word. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to get real today with each other? Amen. Well, last Sunday, we explored the first 17 verses of Luke chapter 7. And today we pick up in verse 18. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits, gave sight to many who were blind, So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. May God bless us as we study his word today. I hope you have those message notes handy. There's a few blanks to fill in, a few spaces for you to jot down some notes along the way. Important message today from this important passage here in Luke chapter 7. Originally, I had planned on going down and, and finishing the next, I don't know, 12 verses or so beyond this, but I just really felt as I was preparing this message that God wanted us to just take this short little passage and just hang our hats on it today, focus on this little passage Today in Luke, in Luke chapter seven, the first seventeen verses, as we saw last week, Jesus performed these two amazing miracles. The first of those miracles, early in chapter seven, remember what happened. There was a centurion that sent uh, some of the Jewish leaders, some of the Jewish elders, to Jesus, and they asked this question of Jesus: uh, "Jesus, will you go and heal uh, the centurion's servant?" He deserves this because he's a good man, he's a friend of our nation, he's even helped to bankroll the building of our synagogue in Capernaum. Will you please go and heal the centurion's servant who's on his deathbed? And remember what happened, Jesus begins to go, but then a little bit later that centurion sends some friends, and those friends say, the centurion wanted you to know he doesn't even deserve to have you come inside his house. Just speak the word and he'll be healed from a distance. And so that first amazing miracle in Luke chapter 7 was Jesus healing this servant who was on his deathbed. And Jesus wasn't touching the man with his hand. Uh, Jesus wasn't in the man's bedroom. He wasn't even in the man's house or on the man's block where he lived. He simply from a distance said, be healed. And the man was healed that very hour. And then from there, Jesus went to this little town called Nain. We picked up with that around verse 11. Jesus goes to this town of Nain, uh, just five miles or so outside of his original hometown of Nazareth. And there in Nain, remember, there's this funeral procession. And there they are with that casket or, or that coffin of that little boy who had died, his mother's only son. She was a widow, and now she didn't have a husband, and now she didn't have a son. 
And so there that coffin was on the shoulders of the men who were carrying it. Jesus stopped the procession and they asked, why are you crying? And then he touches the coffin and tells the boy to get up. And the boy sits up in his coffin and everyone is floored that Jesus has just raised someone from the dead. Pretty good 17 verses, don't you think? Great way to start the chapter. And after those two amazing miracles, we pick up in verse 18 where it says, John's disciples told John about all of these things. Hmm. The people were filled with awe. Word about Jesus had spread all the way through Israel. And that word about Jesus' miracles and his teaching had spread all the way to John the Baptist there sitting in prison. We're going to put up a few pictures for you. Uh, we're not told in the Gospels where it was that John was incarcerated, but that's where some extra biblical documents help us out. The most respected first century historian is a man by the name of Josephus. And so Josephus, interestingly, is just a Jewish man, a Jewish historian, not even a follower of Christ. In his historical records of the first century A.D., verifies so many of the key details of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. And so it's pretty cool that for those that say, well, I don't believe the Bible's account of Jesus Christ. Well, go to Josephus. Or there, you could go to Tacitus, the Roman historian, or you could go to Pliny the Younger. There are any number of respected non-Christian first century historians that verify the key details that we read in the gospel accounts. And so we can go to Josephus, and he tells us where it was that John the Baptist was incarcerated. It was this area called Macarus. Let's put up the photo there on the screen. Macarus is an area that was to, from your vantage point, to the right side of the dead sea. So the Dead Sea is the larger sea in the southern part of Israel. Up on the north, the smaller one is the Sea of Galilee, close to where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. But down in the south is the Dead Sea. If you look to the left, there's Jerusalem, the capital city. To the right, to the east of the Dead Sea, is this area called Macarus. So that's the area where Josephus tells us John the Baptist was incarcerated. This next photo will show you a castle. There was this castle of Macarus. This is an artist's rendering because today there's just small parts of this castle still remaining. But it was built on this large uh, plateau area on top of a small mountain. And so it was this fortress, it was this castle, one of the places where King Herod Antipas would reside at different points during the year. And so here it was on the east coast of the Dead Sea in this area of Macarus, in this castle fortress where John the Baptist was incarcerated. And here's an artist rendering. This is from one of the Jesus movies. What John the Baptist may have looked like there with his long hair and his straggly beard. Remember, he wore camel's hair uh, for clothes. And he was a rugged outdoorsman type. And so there he was incarcerated in this castle by King Herod. Now, the Gospels tell us, particularly Matthew, why it was that John the Baptist was incarcerated. John the Baptist had been speaking out to King Herod Antipas, and he had called him out for being a fornicator, for being an adulterer, and for marrying a woman that he had no business marrying. And we know historically what happened. You see, John the Baptist was speaking out about King Herod Antipas. He fell in love, or you might say he fell in lust, with a certain lady by the name of Herodias. 
But there were a couple problems with that. The first problem was Herodias was married to King Herod's brother. She was already spoken for. So he was fallen in love or falling in lust with his sister-in-law. It's not a good thing. He goes to Herodias and he convinces her to divorce her husband and marry him instead. Meanwhile, King Herod will divorce his own wife so he can marry Herodias, and he somehow thinks that that's okay to do. And so that's what happens. Herodias divorces King Herod's brother, marries King Herod instead. They become husband and wife. Oh, and I forgot one other key detail here. Herodias was King Herod's niece. So not only was he sinning against his brother who was rightfully married to Herodias. Not only was he convincing Herodias to divorce her husband, his brother, so she could marry him, he was divorcing his own wife and turning around and marrying his own niece. So let's throw some incest into the mix. King Herod was clearly breaking God's laws, and John the Baptist told him that loud and clear. And King Herod didn't like that too much. Imagine that. He didn't like John the Baptist calling him out, and so he throws John the Baptist in prison there in uh, this fortress of Machaerus, there on the east side of the Dead Sea. And there John the Baptist was month after month after month. Now, you can imagine being an outdoorsman, a, a rugged outdoors type, that John the Baptist probably hated being in prison more than you and I would. I don't know about you, but I would hate being in jail. John the Baptist probably hated it more. He wasn't used to having any walls, any doors, any neighbors. For the majority of his life, he lived out there in the wilderness. He was some sort of Alaska, the wild frontier settler with with, uh, grizzly atoms all rolled into one. And this rugged outdoorsman, it must have been hell on earth. For him, day after day, confined to this smelly, damp, claustrophobic prison cell. Well, on the bright side, John did get some visitors, even though by this point Jesus had been ministering for the better part of a year. Some of John the Baptist's disciples still stuck with him. Uh, Months earlier, John had encouraged his disciples to start following Jesus instead, because after all, John was just blazing the trail for Jesus. And so those who followed John, John, for the most part, wanted them to follow Jesus from that point forward. But as he was there in that prison cell, still receiving visits from some of his most loyal followers, he must have been grateful that a few had stayed behind with him. Well, several of these loyal followers of John uh, had been following Jesus around probably for a few weeks, and uh, they were John's eyes and ears. And in verse 18, they come to John here in Machaerus, and and they give him a full report. They told uh, John about Jesus' upside-down teaching that he had given in chapter 6, and they told him about Jesus' miracles like the ones he performed early in chapter 7. And you would think that John would have just, just been ecstatic by this report about Jesus. Just blown away. Wow, he raised the dead? Amazing. He healed this centurion's servant, and he was like five blocks away? You're kidding me. He's opening the eyes of the blind? We would expect that John would be blown away by this report. But as we look at verses 18 and 19, look at those verses again. John doesn't seem blown away. 
You look at verses 18 and 19, and more true to the case, he seems a bit confused. I dare say he even feels disappointed. John summons two of his disciples, and he gives them an important errand to carry out. He tells them, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Over the last 2,000 years, Christians have really struggled with what they read in these verses. Christians have read this passage and they've found it a, a bit befuddling, this, this question that John asks his disciples to ask Jesus. Like, seriously? Uh, wasn't it John that just a, a year earlier had been out there by the Jordan River proclaiming that Jesus was going to come? Wasn't it John the Baptist who had been out there a few months earlier baptizing Jesus there in the Jordan River? And then a day later when Jesus returns to where John is, John does one of these numbers and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pointing right to Jesus. Sorry to point at you, Barry. I didn't mean to mix you two up. Wasn't that John that did that and identified to the whole crowd, this is the Lamb of God, this is the one I've been telling you about? Wasn't it John that on the day Jesus was baptized, heard with his own ears the voice from heaven saying, this is my loved son, he is the one I am well pleased with, listen to him? Wasn't that John who heard that with his own ears? And the answer to all those questions is yes. John heard the testimony of the Father from heaven with his own ears. He saw Jesus with his own eyes. He identified Jesus as the Lamb of God to the crowd. So how on earth could this man at this point in time be asking the question, Jesus, are you really the one or should we look for someone else? What gives? Well, God had given John more than enough evidence to prove to him that Jesus was the promised Messiah John had been blazing a trail for. Where did all these doubts come from then? Well, some Christians who have studied this passage have answered that dilemma this way. Some have studied this passage and they said this. Well, John, in actuality, doesn't have any doubts. What's John doing here? John is sending his disciples to ask this question of Jesus so they can have their doubts dealt with. John didn't doubt, but he was doing this for the benefit of his disciples. Is that possible? I suppose, but it's not very likely. You see, there's no evidence in the text here. Nothing that indicates that John himself was doubt-free. There's no indication here. It seems clear that John the Baptist, one of God's greatest prophets of all time, one of God's most faithful followers of all time, struggled with doubt. As he sat in that prison cell, he doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. And no matter how glowing the report was about Jesus' teaching and his miracles, he was somewhat disappointed in Jesus. We ask, how was that possible? How could anyone especially someone like John the Baptist, be disappointed in Jesus? And I think the best answer can be found in John's preaching that he had shared out in the wilderness a year earlier. If you go back to Luke chapter 3, 
Luke gives us a snapshot of John's preaching. And I want you to listen to John's message once again from Luke 3. Here's what he was preaching for all those months out there by the Jordan River as he was drawing the crowds in and pointing them toward Jesus. He he preached this message. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That was his message. It's a pretty cheery sermon, don't you think? Wouldn't you love to hear that every week? He's coming and he's going to burn you up. You talk about fire and brimstone preaching. I counted this morning. He says fire three times. And this is just a small synopsis of his message. He talked about fire a lot. I want to suggest to you that John the Baptist doubted that Jesus was the Christ. Because up to that point in time, Jesus hadn't been the Christ that John the Baptist had expected him to be. Chew on that for a moment. Up to that point in time, I suggest to you that Jesus had not been the Messiah that John the Baptist had expected him to be. As John had spent countless hours studying the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Christ, he gravitated to the passages that emphasized the Christ as a fierce conqueror who would carry out swift justice on those who refused to repent. Listen again to how John described the crowds, what the Christ would be like and what he would do. John said he'll be coming with wrath. He would use his axe to cut down trees that didn't produce good fruit. He'd throw them into the fire. He would baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he would burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So when John's disciples are coming back to him and reporting all that Jesus was teaching and all that Jesus was doing in these miracles, we listen to those and, wow, we're blown away. But John was looking for some specifics that he had gravitated to over the years of preparing himself to pave the way for the Christ. And so he might have asked them questions like this. Well, let me ask you this, guys. When he was talking about this upside-down, topsy-turvy living that we saw in chapter 6, When he was teaching, did he say anything about God sending down fire? No, I didn't hear him say anything about that, John. All right. Uh, Did Jesus send down fire on on, on some of those no good uh, uh, tax collectors that were in the crowd? Did he send down fire from heaven and burn them up on the spot? No, Jesus, he didn't do that. Certainly he did something with fire. Did he at least go off to the side and make a little campfire while he was preaching? No, I didn't even see him make a campfire. Nothing about fire? It didn't make sense to John. Jesus was supposed to bring swift justice. He was supposed to bring wrath. He was supposed to bring fury. John had warned the people that that axe is at the root of the trees. It's about to be chopped down. You better get right with God. And Jesus, although his miracles were awfully impressive and his teaching was downright amazing, 
he really expected the Savior to be more ruthless when he came. One who would carry out that swift justice on the Roman leaders, including that rotten, no-good King Herod who had thrown John into that horrible prison cell. A few verses later, Jesus will say of John the Baptist that he is greater than any man born of a woman. But just like the rest of us, John the Baptist was human. And at times he struggled with human discouragement. At times John struggled with human confusion and he even struggled with human doubt. When Jesus gave his inauguration speech to ministry, we saw it back in Luke chapter 4. That's that speech he gave before he was kicked out of the Nazareth synagogue and, and driven to the edge of a cliff where they wanted to push him off to his death. That's when Jesus decided, I better find a new hometown. Well, there in that synagogue in Nazareth, as Jesus gave his inauguration speech, you can flip back a few pages to Luke 4 if you want to see it. It's recorded in verses 18 through 21. There in Luke 4, Jesus opened the scroll of Isaiah and read from chapter 61 of Isaiah, verses 1 and 2. And John would have been very familiar with this prophecy about the Messiah because he knew these prophecies like the back of his hand as he did his job to prepare for the Messiah. As Jesus gave his inauguration speech, Jesus read from, from uh, uh, Isaiah 61, and he said this there in that synagogue in Nazareth. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was doing exactly what he said he was going to do according to that prophecy about the Messiah, wasn't he? We look at those words of Jesus in the synagogue and what he did in the months after that, and we say, John, how could you not see it? You knew this scripture about the coming Messiah. Wasn't Jesus doing exactly what he read? Well, John would have had at least two issues with this inauguration speech to ministry that Jesus gave there in the synagogue in Nazareth. Number one, he would basically, I think, be asking this question, Jesus, if you are the promised Christ... Part of your God-given mission is to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, is it not? Shouldn't that include me? Wouldn't you be thinking the same thing if you're there in that dank dungeon or that terrible prison cell? Shouldn't that include me? John had, in his mind, gone over the scenario probably a hundred different times. Those circumstances that had led to his arrest and his incarceration. A hundred times he had gone through it in his mind. And every single time he came to the same conclusion, he had done absolutely nothing to deserve the punishment he was being given. There was nothing he had done that caused him to deserve to be put in chains and shackles and to be incarcerated in this stinky old castle on the east side of the Dead Sea. There was nothing he had done that caused him to deserve this. So certainly, Jesus, if you came as the Messiah to release prisoners, shouldn't I be on the top of that list of who deserves to be released? I think he would have had another issue with Jesus' inauguration speech. And frankly, a lot of the Jewish leaders in those days would have had the same beef. Notice that when Jesus read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, he ended with this phrase, I came to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When he said to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, at that point he rolled up the scroll and put it down. 
And every scholar in the room would have been a bit baffled because they knew that verse well and knew that Jesus didn't finish the verse. If you go back to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the verse says this, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So that's what John gravitated to. And he would add a beef with Jesus coming simply to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and stopping short of proclaiming the vengeance of our God. He didn't like the fact that Jesus wasn't bringing vengeance. In his time of trial and suffering, John had a very difficult time seeing the big picture. He had a hard time seeing the truth that one day in the distant future, vengeance would be a part of Jesus' mission. But first, Jesus had to bring mercy and forgiveness. And Jesus would one day bring justice to Israel's enemies, but first he would offer them grace. Jesus would one day ride his white stallion and wield his sword of wrath and hatred for sin. But before he would ride that white stallion and lift that sword of wrath, he would first be riding a humble donkey and going into Jerusalem where he would be nailed to a cross and shed his own blood because God so loved the world. Look at verse 20. John's two disciples, they went to Jesus and they did what they had been told to do. They said to Jesus, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Notice that Jesus didn't shake his fist in anger at John's question. That no good locust eater. I can't believe he's questioning whether or not I'm the Christ. Didn't he hear the voice of the Father in heaven? Didn't he baptize me? Didn't he point to me and say, look, the Lamb of God? After all I've done for him, talk about ungrateful. I hope that no good locust eater rots in a prison cell. No, he didn't exactly respond that way, did he? Jesus didn't respond harshly. Jesus didn't condemn John's doubt. In fact, he embraced it. Jesus didn't complain about John's disappointment with him. Instead, Jesus responded with compassion. He responded with grace. And Jesus simply kept preaching the good news and healing the sick in plain view of John's disciples. And then after doing so, Jesus turned to John's two disciples and he gently told them in verses 22 and 23, Go back. Report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus was very specific with the miracles that he identified. And if you were to go back and look at the prophecies about the coming Christ in the book of Isaiah, the prophecies that John knew very well, you would discover in Isaiah chapter 29, verses 18 through 21, and in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6, and you would discover there in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, that the blind receiving sight and the lame walking and those that are deaf hearing and the dead being raised and the good news being preached to the poor were all signs that the guy doing that was, in fact, the Messiah. 
So Jesus so lovingly and compassionately demonstrates for John's two messengers the exact things that 600 years earlier in Isaiah had been prophesied that the true Messiah would do. Tell John what you see. Tell John what you see. John's disciples return to John. They relayed Jesus' message to them, and as best as we can tell, John's faith in Jesus was restored, and he served him faithfully until his dying day when that executioner walked into his prison cell and lopped off his head. John made it through that season of doubt. And disappointment with Jesus. And I believe you will as well. Three lessons I don't want you to miss. We need to be honest with each other when we tackle a subject like this. As we follow Christ, we all deal with doubt at times, don't we? We all at times feel a bit disappointed. We know in our heart of hearts that Jesus is good, but at times it doesn't feel like he's good to me. Maybe he's good for you, but it sure doesn't feel like he's good to me. We know in our hearts that Jesus' plans are better than my plans, and his timing is better than my timing. But when we're going through some stuff, it sure feels like his timing stinks. If you'd only come yesterday, why did you wait, O oh God? Sometimes it feels like Jesus has let us down. I'm, I'm following Jesus as best that I can, but my life's just not going as good as I thought it would with Jesus in the driver's seat. They told me it would go better than this. At times it feels like it's even going worse. Well, with that in mind, here are these three important lessons that are so important for you to know. And for those you know that are going through some difficulties and they've distanced themselves from God and distanced themselves from church, they need to learn these things as well. They're so important. Number one, if you are a true follower of Christ, doubt may temporarily disturb your relationship with Jesus, but it won't destroy it. Isn't that encouraging? Teenagers, I've got to be honest with you as a dad. One of the things that scares a Christian parent half to death is when their own son or daughter as a teenager begins to doubt their faith. That's a scary time for a parent. It's a scary time for a grandparent. But parents, you know many of you have clung to that wonderful proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. If your son or daughter's faith is real, it will survive the period of testing. And as hard as it is to deal with as a parent or grandparent, knowing that your kids or grandkids are wrestling with their faith and they're asking questions like, I don't know if God is really real. I don't know if Jesus Christ is the only way. I don't know if the Bible is the perfect, unadulterated word of God without any error. They ask these questions, and we're like, ah, no. There's a reason I had you in church every Sunday of your life. There's a reason I had you in Sunday school and in youth group. 
There's a reason I knelt by your bed when you didn't know it and I was praying over you while you were sleeping. It's hard. But if their faith is real, they'll survive. In fact, their faith may even become stronger. I like what Chuck Swindoll says about our faith being tested. He writes, Some doubting is healthy. Doubt can force us to pursue the truth rather than just being gullible and believing whatever we're told. Doubts fuel the believer's pursuit of real answers to life's most troubling questions. Doubts make deep rivers out of novice swimmers, allowing us to go down and find treasures many people don't even know exist. Isn't that good? As our kids and as our grandkids go through a period of testing, teenagers, as you go through a period of testing, it can be scary. But if your faith is real, you will come out on the other end of it, not just grabbing on to your parents' faith, but taking ownership in your own faith. And as you move into your adult years, taking ownership of your own faith will put you in a such much, uh, a much stronger place than you'd ever be. And if you, than if you were just towing your parents' faith into college. It's a scary time. But if our faith is real, you'll make it through. As a wise man once said, whatever doesn't kill you, make you stronger. Lesson number two. When you're doubting Jesus and you feel like he has let you down, take your doubt and disappointment to him. He's a big God. He can handle it. Sometimes our Lord is the last person we want to take our doubts to. But uh, I'll let you know a dirty little secret here. It's been many times this preacher, as I'm driving in my car by myself, I've had some words with the Lord. Notice that I still have most of the hair on my head. He didn't send down fire and burn me up because I had some concerns. He didn't send down fire and burn me up because I had some doubts or some disappointments with him. He didn't strike me dead because I felt at the time that my ways and my timing were better than his ways and his timing. He gently and lovingly slapped me upside the head. No. He gently and lovingly... (laughs) listened and saw me through, and in hindsight, I said, oh, that's why you did that. Now I understand. Take your disappointment to him. Take your doubt to him. I encourage you. I I hear Christians say fairly often, I just don't know how to pray. And that might be because we just have the wrong idea of prayer. Some of the best prayers are you going to Jesus and just having some words with him. Jesus, I I ask you to heal my spouse of this cancer and you haven't done it. I don't understand, God. I don't understand. I asked you to be with me and I've still got that eviction notice and it looks like I am going to be evicted. I asked you to work a miracle and you haven't come through yet, God. I don't understand. God, I've got some issues with you right now. Why are you doing this? They told me that you were going to come through, and you're not coming through. 
I don't understand God. Have those conversations with Him. If your faith is real, you'll make it through those seasons of doubt. And if you go to Him with those doubts, and you go to Him with those concerns, and you go to Him with those disappointments, He can handle it, and He'll see you through. So I was thinking about this message. It's it's one of the reasons I really, really despise some of the prosperity preaching going on in our nation these days. Pastors getting up and saying, if you have enough faith, God will give you a million dollars. If you have enough faith, God will do this for you. If you have enough faith, He will definitely heal you of that illness. If we are following the God of Scripture, who never promises that we'll be materially rich, who never promises that we will be perfectly healthy, who never promises that we'll never have to wrestle with cancer or the death of a loved one. If we're following that God of Scripture, there still will be times when we're disappointed. But how much are we setting Christians up for even more disappointment when we make God out to be some genie in heaven who does every single thing we ask Him to do? And there are groves of people leaving the church and walking away from the faith and walking away from Christianity because they've been sold a bill of goods that Jesus Christ will give you every stinking selfish thing that you wanted. It's just not true. You follow the God of Scripture. You'll still deal with some disappointments. You'll still at times feel let down. But I promise you, He can handle that when you voice that to Him and He will see you through. Lesson number three. Special blessings await those who endure earthly disappointments and inequalities, believing that there are heavenly rewards. John the Baptist had overwhelming evidence that Jesus was the promised Christ. He heard Jesus' teaching. He knew of all his one-of-a-kind miracles. He'd even heard the voice of God. But when John was down in the dumps, he had doubts and disappointments anyway, and Jesus was perfectly fine that John brought his doubt and disappointment to him. In fact, he wouldn't have it any other way. And John, as he received that message back from his followers that pointed to Isaiah 29 and pointed to Isaiah 35 and pointed to Isaiah 61, those clear prophecies about what the Messiah would do when he came. John had all the evidence he needed, and every evidence seems to indicate that he truly did follow Jesus Christ until his dying day. John's imprisonment, make no mistake about it, until his dying day, his imprisonment never seemed fair to him because it wasn't fair. His imprisonment, even on the day he was killed, it it never seemed to be just because it wasn't just. And honestly, his imprisonment was a major disappointment at the end of such a fruitful season of ministry. Thousands were coming to John at the Jordan River. Thousands were turning and getting themselves prepared for Christ. What a fruitful ministry he had. And this seemed like a major disappointment at the end of that. What a way to end your life after such a fruitful ministry probably never ceased to seem like a disappointment. But John the Baptist endured, knowing that God would reward him in heaven. And that's what exactly God did for John the Baptist. And that's exactly what he'll do for you as well. I want to leave you with one final passage. Hebrews chapter 12. Many of you know that Hebrews chapter 11 is called the faith chapter. 
And so there in the faith chapter, the writer of Hebrews is lifting up uh, Abel, who offered God in faith a good sacrifice, and lifting up Noah, who had enough faith to spend a hundred years to build an ark to prepare for a flood that seemed like absolute craziness, that there's going to be a flood in the middle of the desert, but he built his ark anyway, and Noah had faith in God. And then there was Abraham who had faith in God and was willing to offer his only son Isaac as a sacrifice to God because God said so. And at the end of chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says, there were all these men and women living by faith and they didn't even see with their own eyes what God had promised to them, but they lived in faith anyway. And then starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, he writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you're going through those disappointments, as you're going through the period where your faith is tested, You fix your eyes on Jesus, and He will gently, He will compassionately, He will faithfully see you through. He did it for John the Baptist, and He'll do it for you. Lord, thank You. Sometimes we we look at these heroes of our faith, whether it's King David or whether it's Paul or whether in this case it's John the Baptist. And, Lord, we're just blown away by these heroes of our faith. Wow! They had such faith in you. They had such impact for you. And yet on a day like this, we look at John the Baptist and see that he wasn't perfect. He dealt with human struggles just like we do. His faith was shaken at times just like ours is. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do what John the Baptist did, to come to you with our concerns, to come to you with our questions, to come to you with our disappointments, and just be honest with you. He could have just kept that question to himself. It would have been maybe less embarrassing, but he took that question to you anyway because he wanted to know. Lord, I pray that we would come to you. We pray that, oh God, you would listen and receive those concerns, those doubts, those disappointments. And Lord, that you would, just as you promised to, that you would see us through. And Lord, we know that your timing is better than our timing. We know that your ways are higher than our ways. We know that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So help us to trust in you during the times that our faith is shaken. God, I pray for our teenagers and young adults whose faith is tested. And for some of them, probably every single day they go to school, their faith is tested. 
Lord, you're just putting that, that verse in my mind where Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, O Simon, that you would remain strong, and when you return, that you would strengthen your brothers. I pray the same for our young people, O God. And when they are tested, when Satan is trying to sift them as wheat, we pray for them that during that period of testing they would return and strengthen others and lead them to you. Be with the adults, O God, in this room who are struggling with their faith, who are here today but they feel let down by you. Lord, would you remind them of your goodness and your grace? They may not always like the way you do things, but your way is always best. Bring us through. See us through. And I pray that our faith in the end would stand firm. In Jesus' name, amen.